Greetings and welcome to Word Magazine. This is Jeff Riddle, I'm the pastor of Christ Reformed Baptist Church in Louisa, Virginia. And in this episode of Word Magazine, we're going to be doing an article review. I've had a number of people suggest various articles that they thought it might be interesting for me to review, uh, both published uh, articles that I have in a PDF form or sometimes articles on the websites. And I thought, uh, although I've done some article reviews in the past, I thought maybe uh, maybe in the coming weeks and months, we can do a few more of these uh, types of, of article reviews. And the one we want to work with today is an article that was written by Dirk Yonkin. Uh, Dirk Yonkin is, uh, was the editor of the Tyndall House Greek New Testament of 2017. And uh, he uh, works with the Tyndall House uh, in Cambridge in the UK. I think he's originally from Holland. And the article that I want to review is one that just came out in the spring. It's titled... It does not make a difference. The fraught relation between textual criticism of the New Testament and theology. And I was interested in this because I am interested in the subject of uh, text criticism and theology. And you may well know that for a long time, it's been the response of many evangelicals who've embraced the modern uh, text method, the modern text, uh, to simply uh, give us an apologetic, well, uh, you know, um, there are lots of variants, but none of the variants uh, affect any cardinal doctrine of the scriptures. And um, we have responded that, yes, uh, textual variants do affect uh, cardinal doctrines. They affect the doctrines uh, in the individual passages. But more than that, they affect the overall doctrine of scripture or bibliology. And so we'll probably talk about that. I was also interested in this paper because um, I had heard, read, and seen in, 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 in other conversations that perhaps uh, Dirk Yonkin and the Tyndall House Greek New Testament um, was having second thoughts about its reading found in John 118. It was encouraging that at John 118 in the 2017 edition, they had used the traditional uh, language that's found there at John 118 that speaks of Christ as the monogenes huios, the only begotten son. And in the modern critical text, it's monogenes theos, the only begotten God. And I had uh, read and seen, heard in conversations that uh, they might possibly be changing that. And so there is a discussion of John 118 in this paper. And so I was interested to see uh, what indications might be given uh, about a possible change uh, there at John 118. So with that said, let's go ahead and see if we can pull the uh, paper up on the screen. And I've gone through it and I have highlighted uh, some of the passages, and we're just going to walk through and do a brief survey of this uh, article. The article appeared in the journal Presbyterion, which is the Journal of the Covenant Seminary, a PCA seminary, and this was in the spring 2023 issue. And actually, there were several um, um articles in this issue related to textual criticism. There's the one that I've highlighted. We're going to be looking at uh, by Dirk Youngkin. It does not make a difference, the fraught relation between the textual criticism of the New Testament and theology uh, there on pages 13 to 38. But um, it also includes this article by Peter Gurry, Inerrancy in the Initial Text, and this one by Matthew Bennett, Apples and Oranges, the Theological Implications of Textual Critical Discoveries in the Bible and in the Quran. And so um, maybe we'll do future uh, episodes uh, reviewing uh, those other two articles. We'll see. But for, day, for today, we're going to deal with the one by um, Yonkin. And so uh, here it is. And by the way, this, um, this article is posted to Dirk Yonkin's academia.edu page. So it's out there in public use on the internet. 
And so uh, therefore I'm, I'm feeling uh, free to go ahead and post it here. Um, and again, I went through uh, the original doesn't have these highlights. I've added these blue highlights just to give us some focus uh, on the review. So let's start um, again with the title. It does not make a difference. The fraught relation between the textual Christian of the New Testament and theology. And he's got that, that opening statement. It does not make a difference in quotes. I don't think he's saying that, that he's giving a response maybe to people who say that they're, that, 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 textual criticism doesn't make any difference, or that the theological presuppositions of the textual critic don't make any difference. And um, then he's going to talk about this as a fraught relationship, uh, a tense relationship between those who are textual critics and those who are interested in systematic theology and doctrine. And so we'll see where he comes out uh, on this issue as we work uh, through the article. And so uh, it opens with the question, do the disciplines of theology and textual criticism ever touch one another? And he starts with a quotation from a, a scholar of the 20th century. Uh, I think you pronounce his name, Bartholomew. And uh, he basically says, uh, he gives an example that he spent a long time studying uh, the Palestinian recensions of the Greek Bible uh, that come from the first century of the Christian era. And he says, I confess it brought me no new light whatsoever on the impact that the word of God must have on my life. So he says he can bifurcate textual criticism from theology and that studying the text made no impact on his doctrinal beliefs, theological beliefs, and so forth. By the way, I should have mentioned that at, at the bottom of the article, it says, uh, tells you a little about Dirk Yonkin, that he's the academic vice principal of the Tyndall House, Cambridge. And it also notes that this essay was presented in the Inerrancy of Scripture session at the annual meeting of the Evangelical Theological Society held in Denver, Colorado in November of 2022. I think maybe the other two articles on textual criticism were also presented in that same uh, session or unit at the ETS meeting of 2022. So um, anyway, so he's starting off, he's got, he's got this quotation from this scholar who's, who's a, a biblical scholar saying that he can look at the text and it doesn't have any impact on his theological or doctrinal beliefs. And then he moves on to talk about um, those who are systematic theologians. He says, reversely, systematicians happily repeat that theology is not affected by textual criticism either. And so we have uh, people who are um, systematic theologians, and they also make the argument that uh, you can sort of divide and separate text criticism and theological study and there the, the two, there the twain shall meet, um, I guess. And he says that this sentiment is expressed in the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. Uh, since God has nowhere promised an inerrant transmission of Scripture, it is necessary to affirm the, that only the autographic texts of the original documents are inspired and to maintain the need of te uh, textual Christmas as a means of detecting any slips that may have crept into the text in the course of its transmission. The verdict of this science, however, is that the Hebrew and Greek texts appear to be amazingly well-preserved so that we are amply justified in affirming with Westminster Confession a singular providence of God in this matter and in declaring that the authority of Scripture is in no way jeopardized by the fact that the copies we possess are not entirely error-free. I would suggest that that is a new definition of what providential preservation is. That is not the classic view of providential preservation. If you look, go back and read the Reformed Orthodox, they believed in the meticulous preservation of the scriptures. They believed they had the authentic text in the apographic, traditional apographic text and in the printed uh, editions of it, in the received text. Um, they did not think that we were waiting upon a process of textual critics uh, to ascertain or reconstruct the text or some approximation of it. 
But um, anyways, uh, he gives examples of two evangelical theologians uh, who address in their theological works um, issues related to textual criticism. Uh, he notes that there's an ongoing awareness in either camp, biblical textual criticism and systematic theology, where each discipline has something to say about the other. And again, he's going to focus on two evangelical theologians. The first one uh, he makes reference to is John Frame. And he refers to John Frame's book, The Doctrine of the Word of God. And he notes there that Frame, uh, in that work, uh, derives a supporting argument for why ultimately only the autographs are inspired. And so basically he, he notes how Frame is spinning out this new definition of what providential preservation means. And then he adds, Frame even attempts to answer the question, why did God not give us perfect copies? And he gives Frame's answer, it is most likely that God wanted us to appropriate his personal words in a communal way. And see what he's what Frame was doing. And uh, Yonkin is actually, as we're going to see, quite approving of Frame's um, perspective, is that, that God intentionally uh, gave us um, uh, these imperfect copies because he wanted us to work together in a communal way. Scholars helping laymen, various scholars helping one another, the academy helping the church, and so forth. And again, my question is, is that a biblical construal of preservation? Is that the way preservation is presented in the Bible itself? And I would suggest that I don't think that's quite uh, the way it's presented in Scripture. In Scripture, it's presented as God preserves the word by his singular care and providence, uh, not uh, dependent upon the means of modern textual critics. Uh, he gives us a second example after frame, uh, the systematic theology written by Robert Lethem and published in 2019. And he notes that Lethem also has what he calls the same optimism that is found in the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy uh, and also found in frame. And he quotes uh, here, Lethem, textual criticism has yielded a text that gets us as close to the original as it may be possible to come. And this type of language of approximation uh, is very common among particularly modern evangelicals who've embraced the modern critical text. They don't say that we have the text. What they say is we have a very close approximation to it. We almost have it. We, we almost have it. It's almost as though we have. We don't quite have it, but it's almost as though we do. Um, Yonkin says of this, he says, something of the language of approximation shines through, which is useful terminology that goes back into the 19th century. So for Dirk Yonkin, he sees this, this position of frame and, and of Lethem as uh, being uh, helpful. This is useful terminology. Uh, if the best we can have is an approximation of the text, then that's the best we can have. And he notes, I think, interestingly, that this goes back to the 19th century. And I, I might add the, the um, put the additional um, word in there only. It only goes back to the 19th century. And I think if we go back to the Protestant Orthodox before the 1800s, you would not find people saying, uh, well, we've got a pretty close text. No, uh, the Protestant Orthodox were saying in the faithful apographs, we have the autographs and they have been uh, kept pure in all ages by God himself. And so they were not waiting for some sort of scholarly enterprise to reconstruct the text. They believed that they had it and they didn't have just an approximation of it. Um, he proceeds to add another statement from Lethem. Uh, page 41 of the article, a text, uh, he says, he says, we have a text more complete 
than possessed by anyone in the first century. So this is a, a kind of a um, astounding statement that comes from Robert Lethem. Uh, the text we have now in 2023 is uh, is more complete than anyone that was possessed by anyone in the first century. I've heard, I think, James White make similar statements. And I think um, Dirk Yonkin, to his credit, uh, takes note of the fact that this is uh, this is quite a bold statement. He says this is a bold statement, especially since there is so little we know about the written texts of the first century. And uh, just from my perspective, uh, I think that anyone who makes this claim, whether it's James White or Robert Lethem, they're essentially making a completely unverifiable claim, first of all. Um, how do you know that the modern critical text is more complete than texts that, that people had in the first century? And I just think it's historically wrong also because I believe in the first century they had the autograph. They had the autographic text. Uh, we have statements from church fathers uh, like Tertullian that the original letters written to the churches, like to the church at Rome, the church at Corinth, the church at Ephesus, and so forth, that they kept the letters that Paul had written and they laid them up in their churches. And Tertullian said, if you have a question about a copy you have, you can go to the church at Rome or the church at Corinth, and you can check your copy against the original. And, and so uh, certainly I think it would be wrong to say that we have a better text now in the modern critical text than was held by faithful Christians in the first century. Um, of course, I think we have that text, that same text today in the received text. Um, let's see, he proceeds and says two things tend to be completely absent, though, uh, from the treatment of textual criticism in dogmatic works. And it's going to be a little critical of frame and lethal. And he says there, there are two shortcomings in the way that systematic theologians uh, talk about the text of the Bible. He says, first of all, one is their discussions lack any concrete examples of textual variation. And then he says, for another reason, uh, they do not discuss what he calls the scale of the problem. And by this, he says, these systematicians don't seem to give evidence of a, an awareness of cognition of the vastness of the number of extant variants there are between uh, the, the, the manuscripts in the New Testament. And um, we've talked about that before. Recently, um, um, uh, Peter Gurry has uh, said there are, there, are, there are half a million, half a million variants among the existing extant manuscripts. It's interesting that in this article, um, Dirk Yonkin uh, trumps him and, and, and raises him 100,000 um, and says, it says the total number of variant readings may be uh, as uh, high as 600,000. So um, so textual critics like Lethem Frame aren't aware of the problems of reconstruction. Of course, we see the number of variants as uh, evidence of the fact that you can't use the empirical method of reconstruction. We must be dependent upon the providential preservation of God's word, and we're not dependent upon scholars to reconstruct the text for us. Um, now, that's the introduction. This is the introduction. And from here... Um, Yonkin is going to move on to discuss three textual variants, as he puts it, that affect the presentation of Christ in the Gospels. And the three texts he's going to address are Mark 1.1, um, then John 1.18, and then lastly, Luke 23.34a. And so let's briefly look at these three passages uh, that he gives as example passages that could affect the presentation of Christ in the Gospels. In other words, that could affect the theology of the Bible and not just the text. So Mark 1.1, 1, 1, uh, you may be familiar with, is the very first you know, line in the Gospel of Mark, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so uh, many people are aware of the fact that there is controversy over the ending of Mark, Mark 16, 9 through 20, 
But it's also uh, important to remember that there's also controversy about the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. And um, uh, according to Yonkin, uh, he, he thinks he can deal kind of quickly with his first example because he says it so neatly illustrates why textual criticism does not tend to have a big effect on thinking systematically about doctrine. So again, there, he sort of posed this question uh, in the beginning. I, I, I took it sort of as a hypothetical question. It does, our statement, it does not make a difference. But here he seems to be affirming that. And so he thinks Mark 1.1 1, 1 illustrates that textual criticism, uh, textual variants do not make a big difference theologically. So again, what is the issue with uh, Mark 1.1, 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Well, that's the reading of the traditional text, where there are two titles given to the Lord. Uh, he is called uh, Christ, and he is called the Son of God. And um, with respect to textual criticism since the 19th century, there has been attention given to a minority tradition where that second title is omitted. And Mark would begin simply as the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it would not have uh, the, the title Son of God that appears there. And since the 19th century, uh, the suggestion has been made that the appearance of the Son of God in Mark 1.1 is an example of a so-called orthodox corruption. So some pious scribe came along and he sees what they th think is the original, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he wants to add uh, an extra affirmation, um, an extra confessional statement about Jesus, who is the Messiah. And so he adds that he is the son of God. And so um, it's been popular since the 19th century for scholars, some scholars to make the suggestion that son of God is a spurious pious addition and orthodox corruption. Um, and indeed, Dirk Yonkin says, when we look at the Gospel of Mark, clearly um, Mark believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, he says Mark is a powerful witness to the divine status of Jesus, irrespective of the wording of the Gospel's opening sentence. So basically he's saying whether Son of God is there or whether it's not, doesn't really make any difference because in many other places, Mark also presents material that affirms uh, the divine status of Jesus. Uh, he continues here, as so often the tide of accepted wisdom changed, and nowadays one can accept the longer reading that includes the term son of God without embarrassment. And this is interesting. He's saying in the 19th century, there was maybe this rush to want to remove Son of God. But he's saying now um, the tide has changed and now you can be an evangelical scholar and without embarrassment, without embarrassing yourself before the, the academy, that you want to please the academy, of course, you can affirm Son of God as being original. He even says the manuscript evidence is in favor of the so-called longer reading that would include uh, Son of God. Um, he even has a little discussion uh, that follows after this, and he points out that the words huios, and, which means son, and theos, meaning God, are often written as nomina sacra in manuscripts, in manuscript of the New Testament, and so uh, it would be, uh, these are the nomina sacra, upsilon sigma, theta sigma with a line over them. And uh, the previous words, Jesus Christus, uh, would also sometimes be written as the nomina sacra, iota, sigma, chi sigma. Therefore, the uh, omission is often regarded as being completely accidental because you would have had this line of, of um, four nomina sacra, that there could have been a scribal error that simply lopped off uh, the, the statement, the Son of God at the end. Um, 
And so uh, let's see what he says at the end. Let's look at the last paragraph. Um, oh, before we get to that, let's, let's he makes this interesting statement. Um, he says the two different openings of the gospel may indicate two different authorial strategies. And uh, I found this very interesting. He says, so, so the one authorial strategy may have been to have the gospel of Mark begin the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then as the story unfolds, you, 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 it becomes clear to you that Jesus is the son of God, but it's not introduced at the beginning. Whereas another so-called authorial strategy would be to start off from the beginning, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, so that you know it from the very open. What, what I find confusing about this is how many authors were there of the gospel of Mark? If we hold to the traditional, I think, plain sense view, there would be one author that would be John Mark. And uh, is he suggesting that Mark circulated in various forms or that if a copyist changed the original, that that form was just as valid and authorial strategy as the original autograph? Um, I, I would say there's one author and there was one original uh, text of the Gospel of Mark, and that original text, when faithfully copied, is the authentic text. And so there can't be two authorial strategies for the Gospel of Mark. There's only one authorial strategy. And I'll just say overall, um, I think when you look at the Gospel of Mark, um, there's every reason in the world, aside from the overwhelming external evidence, um, that it's the majority reading and it, it appears in um, the, the traditional reading appears in some of the oldest manuscripts. Aside from that, I think the internal evidence is overwhelming because when you look at the Gospel of Mark and it starts the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, there's an affirmation right there in the beginning that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Messiah, and Jesus is the Son of God. And then if you keep reading in the Gospel of Mark and you read about the baptism of Jesus in Mark 1.11, the divine voice says, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then if you continue to read through the Gospel of Mark and you get to Mark chapter 9, which comes after Mark chapter 8, of course, where Peter makes the confession uh, that Jesus is the Christ, and then you then you look at Mark chapter nine, and Christ takes the disciples uh, up on the the mountain of transfiguration, and while they're on the mountain of transfiguration, in Mark nine and verse seven, the divine voice again says, "This is my beloved Son." So you have the two titles. Uh, of Mark 1.1. 1, 1. This is the, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark 8, you are the Christ. Peter says, thou art the Christ. And then the divine voice says, this is my beloved Son. What is more, when you get to the end of the gospel of Mark, when you get to Jesus, uh, who is on trial uh, before the, the chief priest, um, and uh, while he's on trial, this is in Mark 14, verse 61, the high priest asks him, art thou the Christ, the son of the blessed? There's the two titles again. Are you the Christ? Are you the son of the blessed? There's a pious Semitic circumlocution, not are you the son of God, but are you the son of the blessed, the, the blessed one? And how does Christ respond in Mark 14, 62? Ego, I, me, I am. John's not the only gospel that has I am sayings. And then what is more, when you, when you look at Mark 15, verse 39, after Christ dies upon the cross, there's a centurion who stands over against him. And he said, having witnessed the death of Christ upon the cross, he says, truly, this man was the son of God. And so uh, I think in my mind, there's no doubt that the original of Mark 
1 1 is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There are not two authorial strategies. There's, there's one authorial strategy, and it involves the use of uh, the title Son of God, and it's shot through uh, the entirety of the Gospel of Mark. Um, here's his last paragraph on Mark 1 1. However, all this matters much less to the systematician who is unlikely to lose a minute's sleep over this variant. After all, systematizing biblical truth is ultimately not dependent upon the manner in which a doctrine is developed in a book or the frequency with which it is stated. The appellation Son of God is undeniably Mark, so therefore the truth of the matter is not to dispute, and the textual variant will not even cause a ripple in the pool of a systematician's knowledge, the variant does not make a difference anyway. And with all due respect, I think that is a completely wrong-headed way of approaching this. It is important to have the affirmation that Jesus is the Son of God on the very first page, on, in the very first line of this gospel, given that this is a theme. And if it is not there, it diminishes uh, that overall theme and what is more, the issue isn't just the affirmation of Jesus, Son of God. Yes, you can build up theology from other statements within the Gospel of Mark. But what about issues related to the doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of the integrity and the authority of Scripture, and the preservation, the meticulous preservation of Scripture, so that one, not one jot or one tittle passes away? What about the canonicity of Scripture? What is the canonical text of the Gospel of Mark. It, it can't be both and, it's either or. Either it has the canonical text, the, the authorial text has that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, or it doesn't. And I believe all the evidence is in favor of, uh, of it being there. Um, the second of three passages he addresses is John 1.18. And again, I noted that, that I'm particularly interested, I was particularly interested in how he would deal with this uh, verse. He says, our second variant should perhaps have more of an effect on the discussions in, an, in a systematic theology. And so the issue with John 1.18, if you're not familiar with it, is uh, the statement there, is Jesus called the monogenes Theos, as in the modern critical text and modern translations, uh, or is he ha monogenes weos? Is he the only begotten God or the only begotten Son? And what is the significance of this uh, uh, variant? And so he has a discussion of the external evidence for the passage, and he notes uh, here at the top of page 44, for clarity's sake, we will use the phrase only begotten as the English gloss for monogenes. And, um, you know, there are two issues with this passage. One is the text. Is it uh, Theos, uh, God, or Weos, son? Um, there, there's another issue, and that is how do you translate monogenes? The traditional rendering in English has been only begotten. But since the Revised Standard Version in the mid-20th uh, century, 1952, uh, there has been a, a, a tendency to, to render monogenes not as only begotten, but as simply only, or sometimes one and only, or sometimes one of a kind, or something like that. Um, he goes on and discusses uh, Bruce Metzger's textual commentary and his comments upon this passage there where he says that uh, the traditional reading monogenes weos is undoubtedly easier. And why does he say that? Because it fits with other usages that one finds within the Gospel of John and even outside of John in the Johannine literature. The phrase, the only begotten son, uh, uh, appears at John 3.16. It appears in 1 John 4.9. And so it's a Johannine phrase. But Metzger says that's too easy. Uh, and again, the tendency of modern scholars is to say that the, the, the reading that is harmonious with the rest of a gospel, the reading that, that fits uh, with, is in continuity with the rest of the gospel and with orthodox theology, 
uh, that can't be it. It must be the one that's more difficult. It must be the one that departs uh, from this. And so um, uh, I, I did, did note here, it was kind of interesting at the bottom of this page, he talks a little bit about the ESV. Um, he said the, e, the translation of the ESV, the only God, raises a question as it is not self-evidently meaningful in context. If Jesus is the only God, is there still place for God to be revealed? How close is the resultant sentence to tritheism rather than orthodox Trinitarianism? And I thought that was an interesting critique here of the translation of the ESV. And this has been uh, really a hot-button issue lately, really in the last decade. Uh, people like Charles Lee Irons have raised questions, Matthew Barrett, about the modern translations using only or one and only rather than only begotten. And their argument is that uh, these new translations are undermining the traditional Trinitarian view of the eternal generation of the Son, and John 1.18 is a very important proof text for that. It's used as a proof text, in fact, for the eternal generation of the Son in the Westminster Confession of Faith, Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. And so uh, there has been some alarm raised, especially about the translation, but I think it also affects the text. Um, he says, in the end, a difficult reading can be so difficult that it amounts to something akin, something alien rather, to the New Testament. Too difficult can result in, dare one say it, something that is no longer true. And uh, I completely agree with him there. I think it's, it, it's uh, erroneous for uh, modern textual critics to take it as a canon that the difficult, most difficult reading is to be preferred. Sometimes... Uh, the, the most difficult reading is difficult because it's not true that it doesn't fit. It's not in harmony with Orthodox theology. It's not in harmony with the, the rest of the content of Scripture. However, Young can, continues this discussion. And as we're going to see, uh, he is going to make the argument that monogenes theos, the reading of the modern critical text, is actually a reading that's difficult, but it's not too difficult so that it should be excluded. He said, uh, he says, there is a theologically informed way to use this expression, uh, the only begotten God, and therefore the objection that monogenes theos, the only begotten God, is a reading too difficult to be true becomes untenable. The problem lies more likely with the modern reader than with John. So what he's saying is, John didn't have any problem with only begotten God. It's only modern readers, I guess, post-Nicene readers, uh, who had a problem with this. And he makes mention of the fact that uh, the term monogenes theos was used in uh, some uh, orthodox circles. There are orthodox writers who use the term um, forget where it is, someplace in there, though, just above the quotation that I've got highlighted. He mentions that the term appears in the definition of Chalcedon in 451. But I would call attention to the article by Theodore Letus. And Letus also says, yes, there were Orthodox writers who made use of the term monogenes theos. But he adds um, that phrase was never used by Athanasius, the great uh, defender of the Trinity and the deity of the Lord Jesus. And he points out on the negative side that it was used by Valentinian Gnostics. And um, whether it might have been harmlessly used by some Orthodox writers doesn't take away from the fact that it came to be associated with anti- Trinitarian views, the views of the Gnostics, and it also doesn't uh, get away from the fact that it, that it is basically a hapax legomena within the Gospel of John. The statement that is used in John in other places like John 3.16 and in the wider Johannine literature in 1 John 4.9 is the only begotten Son, and uh, we should think that the, that that 
we shouldn't be looking for monogamous theos in the writings of, of some orthodox ecclesiastical writers. We should be looking at how does John use it. And so the overwhelming, I think, uh, internal evidence is in favor of the traditional reading. For Yonkin, however, uh, he thinks that monogamous theos, the more difficult reading in this case, is going to be the best. In fact, he concludes the language is difficult, he says, yet not too difficult. And so having read through this article and having looked at um, Dirk Yonkin's treatment of John 118, I think it's pretty plain that um, he's most likely to, uh, if there is a future printing of the Tyndall House Greek New Testament, uh, that I think the, the, the traditional reading that was in the 2017 printing, the only begotten son is going to be changed and it's now going to uh, be just the same as the modern critical text. Um, he adds here on page 46, text critically, the move from God to son as, as influence from parallel expressions is easier to understand than the other way around. In other words, what he's saying is he can understand why people would have changed the only begotten God to the only begotten son. And he thinks it's less understandable why someone would have tried to change the only begotten son to the only begotten God. My response to that was, would simply be, oh, you can't imagine that there would be that there would be heretical thinkers who would want to undermine the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son and, will, and will, would want to change uh, calling Jesus the, the only begotten Son and instead call him the only begotten God to reflect um, a view of Jesus as, as a demigod as uh, one who was godlike but not equal in essence with the Father and the Spirit, I think it's we can think of all kinds of reasons as to why there would have been those who would have tried to tinker with the text of John 1:18, particularly since it was being used uh, by uh, the Orthodox to defend the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son. Last paragraph of this treatment, he says, going back. To the theme of this essay, the issue is no longer theological, is this heresy or not, but one of Johannine language. What is John doing with these words, and why did he produce such a puzzling wording? At this point, the text critic's work is done, though there may be work left for the theologian to unpack what these words do and do not mean. So basically, he's saying we can do the text critical work, and apparently he believes the Proper reading is the only begotten God. And now we kick it back to the theologians and we let them figure it out. Um, so I, I'm skeptical that one can draw these kinds of lines. One can say, you know, I can, I can, I can set aside my theological, my dogmatic beliefs, and I can just look at the text without any presuppositions. And then I can come up with what I think the text, and then I can punt it over to pass the ball over to the um, uh, systematicians and then let them work with it for a while. I just don't think we can uh, so easily uh, disentangle textual views from theological views. His third and last example is Luke 23, 34a. And this is the great prayer of Christ on the cross. Uh, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Um, he makes, I think the best part of this discussion is he has a really, does a really uh, interesting deep dive looking at the textual apparatus treatment of Luke 23, 34a in what he calls the Nestle Alon series, uh, particularly the more recent editions of the, of the Nestle Alon Novum Testamentum Graeche. And he points out that they continue to place Luke 23, 34a in double brackets. And he notes that, uh, you know, in the um, uh, introduction to the Nesselond uh, critical text, it points out that double square brackets is basically uh, saying that this text enclosed in these brackets cannot be considered authentic. Um, and he points out that there are only actually four passages in the entire New Testament in the 26th and 28th editions that are treated in this way. 
the laundering of Mark, the woman taken in adultery, uh, Luke 23, 34, and Luke 22, 43, and 44, uh, which speak of the angel visiting Christ uh, as he's in prayer before his arrest, and also that he was sweating profusely, so that his sweat was like great drops of blood. And those are the old, those, those are, are in the Nestle-Aland editions, those are, the, those are apparently the four passages where they say there are there are passages that are definitely not authentic that appear in many editions of the Bible, and to me it just seems like this is a uh, a hangover from the work of um, Westcott and Hort. Westcott and Hort famously uh, in Luke twenty four identified a number of passages that they called famously called Western non interpolations. They they said that they were uh, they were um, spurious readings that appeared in the neutral text, but not in some Western manuscripts. They were Western non-interpolations. Uh, in years after Westcott and Hort, all those passages in Luke twenty-four that they raised questions about have come to be affirmed, and yet uh, it seems like in the Nestle-Land tradition, there's still lingering double-bracketed doubts about these two passages. Uh, in Luke, Luke 22, 43 and 44, and Luke 23, 34. Um, so he goes ahead and um, uh, again, does a bit more of a deep dive on the uh, the apparatus in the NA-28. He points out that they put a sign there with a P uh, and a, um, um, a, a bracket there indicating that the words are here due to the influence of a parallel passage. And he looks through the passages that they cite, uh, but uh, some of them are like Luke 6, 27 and 28. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. I'm not sure what translation that is. Um, but anyways, he says, he, he rightly points out that those are only conceptual parallels. They're not verbal parallels. And so he's challenging, questioning the content of the apparatus in the Nestle related to Luke 23, 34, and I think he's rightly doing so. Um, he also uh, points out that it's easier to understand the omission of these words than their addition. Uh, this may be one of those cases where the text of one gospel is harmonized to that of the others by omitting words. Uh, he makes a similar argument in his introduction uh, to the to the Tyndall House Greek New Testament, which was published as a separate book. Uh, he deals with these passages and defends their authenticity, uh, both Luke 22, 43 and 44, and Luke 23, 34a. And uh, he raises this issue of what he calls a harmonization by omission. So because uh, the, the, the intercession of Christ, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, does not appear in Matthew, does not appear in Mark, does not appear in John. He says there would have been a tendency of some scribes to just take it out of Luke uh, so that the Gospels appear all to be in harmony, to take out what is what was unique material in the Gospel of Luke. Um, he uh, goes on to say, what are the consequences of not having these words in Scripture? He says there are two main propositions in these words. The first is that during Jesus' suffering on the cross, he asks the Father to forgive those who crucified him. The second proposition is that the reason for this prayer is that they do not know what they are doing. And he makes an interesting um, tie-in here. This is an argument I haven't seen before in favor of the authenticity of Luke 23, 34. And that is he suggests a connection to the Old Testament uh, discussion of sin offerings in Leviticus chapters four and five, where there was a sin offering that was given for sins done unintentionally or unwittingly. And so he's suggesting that that well could have been a Lucan theme. And if we take out Luke 23, 34, A, uh, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, we would be depriving Luke's gospel of this Old Testament parallel uh, of forgiveness for sins unintentionally committed. 
Um, I, I addressed this passage uh, two years ago at the Trinitarian Bible Society conference in London, and I made a number of internal arguments in favor of the authenticity of Luke 23:34. One of the things I pointed out was that, first of all, the, the, the description of the crucifixion in Luke's gospel is briefer than in any of the other gospels. And uh, it begins in Luke 23, 34 with a prayer of Christ. And, uh, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then it ends with a prayer of Christ in Luke 23, 46, as Christ quotes Psalm 31, 5, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And so there's, I, I see an intentional inclusio. First of all, I think historically both statements were made. We're talking about Luke being driven along by the Holy Spirit, and and both statements were made, and he he literarily is moved by the Holy Spirit to have an inclusio here, with Christ in prayer on the cross. Christ is presented in Luke's gospel as a man of prayer, and he prays for his enemies, just as um, Stephen, the first martyr, will pray for those uh, who are stoning him in Acts seven seven and verse sixty. And so um, it makes perfect sense, Luke 23, 34, uh, on internal grounds for, for the authenticity of this passage. We also see why there might have been those who would want to have wanted to remove it for theological reasons. Those who were troubled by having Jesus pray for those who were crucifying him, uh, perhaps in light of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 A.D., um, perhaps they saw some problem with if Jesus forgave them, why then was the temple destroyed and why was Jerusalem destroyed? But that doesn't negate uh, Christ's words of forgiveness for those crucifying him uh, because there was later destruction that came upon Jerusalem. But we can see perhaps why someone might have wanted to try to tamper with it. Um, let's read the last paragraph here on his discussion of Luke 23, 34. Uh, Youngkin says, my contention is that these words do not change the overall set of propositional truths that are taught in Scripture, as Jesus' death for sin is seen as a sacrifice. Yet the presence or absence of Luke 23, 34a does affect the shape of our understanding of the atonement. It is for this reason that I believe this to be the most important textual variant in the New Testament. That's quite a bold statement. He thinks that this is the most important textual variant in the New Testament, more important, I guess, than the ending of Mark or the woman taken in adultery or uh, the, the coma yoenaum or um, uh, any of the the, the major um, variants that that would affect uh, doctrine. And again, we have this issue once more of the issue is not just the specific doctrine, perhaps um, which the verse touches upon but the larger issue of bibliology, the overall doctrine of scripture, and especially the doctrine of the preservation of scripture. So having looked at those three passages, he, he tacks on a fourth. He calls this a textual variant that affects ethics. And he adds on it a little discussion of 1 Corinthians 738. 1 Corinthians 7 is Paul's great teaching about marriage and divorce and remarriage. And um, in 1 Corinthians 7.38, in a translation based on traditional text, the authorized version, it reads, So then, he that giveth her in marriage doeth well, but he that giveth her not in marriage doeth better. So it seems to be addressing the father of the bride, basically the father of a young maiden. And he's saying... Uh, it's okay to give her in marriage, but it may be better for the kingdom if he does not give her in marriage, and he sort of leaves it as a liberty of conscience issue. If you look at a translation, however, based on the modern critical text, like the ESV, it reads, so then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Here, it's it's not the father of the maiden, but it's it's the, uh, the, the man uh, who has an intended maiden. And now he's saying if he marries her, he does well. But if he refrains from marriage to serve the kingdom, he'll do even better. Um, 
with respect to the text, uh, in the traditional text, the TR, the verb here is ek gamizo, to give in marriage. Um, and you see the prefix ek, out, to give in marriage. And whereas in the modern critical text, it chooses a minority reading, which is simply gamizo, to marry. Um, what's interesting here, though, is Dirk Yonkin makes the suggestion that perhaps it's been an error in the modern critical text and in translations based upon it to embrace the reading gamizo rather than ek gamizo. And here's his, his rationale for that. He says, one wonders if modern English translations have been unwittingly influenced by contemporary Western practice. Advice to a fiancé seems to make more sense than one in the context of arranged marriages. In other words, he's saying, did modern critics and translators prefer the, the reading gamizo because they were thinking of a Western context where a man has the liberty to marry who he wants, as opposed to the traditional reading, which implies something of an arranged marriage, or at least a father, the necessity of a father giving a blessing to a marriage that uh, so the emphasis is upon a setting where the father is giving the maiden, his daughter, away to be married. And, uh, and he says, you know, maybe uh, the, the older men uh, would have been more in tune with the context of the first century, with Paul's context. And so they had no problems uh, using uh, this term to give in marriage rather than having the passage focus on the fiancé. Uh, simply marrying. Um, all right, let's move on now to the conclusion, which he calls the remaining problem. Um, Dirk Yonkin writes, the aim of this essay was to indicate areas where textual criticism comes close to affecting the arguments within doctrine and ethics. Um, so that's the purpose of his article. And then um, he continues, a textual variant can have an impact on our understanding of a sentence or of a paragraph, but only rarely will the effect still be felt on a chapter-by-chapter -chapter understanding of a book. Now, I personally disagree with that. Again, it's not just, well, first of all, these minor changes can dramatically affect uh, doctrine. Did Paul write that... Uh, concerning the Lord Jesus and his incarnation, God was manifest in the flesh, or did he say he was manifest in the flesh? There's a huge theological uh, implication of the text and translation of that, of that verse. Um, so I think he's underscoring that. And again, as I've stated before, he's also ignoring the larger issue of the doctrine of scripture, of bibliology. And then, interestingly enough, he gives a quote from one he calls the well-known text critic David Parker, D.C. Parker, who uh, taught at the University of Birmingham in, in the UK. And I, when I saw this quotation, I, I had to chuckle because some of you may remember a couple of years ago now when I was uh, having some exchanges with Peter Gurry, and I was talking about the goal of textual criticism having changed, having shifted, Peter Gurry very adamantly said, no, it hasn't changed. It hasn't shifted. I said, what about what D.C. Parker said? He, he said, we, we, we don't care about the original text anymore. We, we, we can accept the validity of many texts. And he said, oh, D.C. Parker, he's not been that important in textual criticism. Um, you know, he's, he's not that influential, even though he's the editor of the Gospel of John in the Editio Critica Maior. Um, and then I, I point out just after that that, Tommy Wasserman and um, um, I forget the lady's name with whom he co-authored the book, Jennifer Knust, um, the book on the, uh, the woman taking adultery. They dedicated the book to D.C. Parker. And here it's kind of interesting. This person that, according to Peter Gurry, is not very influential. Um, um, Dirk Young can, gives a quote from him. Uh, and here's here's the quote I find really intriguing. He says, the books survive for us only in certain physical forms. To make theological statements about the character of the New Testament or the Bible is, in my view, dishonest obfuscation. So to talk about the doctrine of Scripture and 
as he would put it, I guess, overlook or ignore or not deal with uh, the, the matter of textual variance is uh, dishonest obfuscation. Any theological a priori, any theological presupposition which says this or that about the New Testament, but with no reference to what the New Testament is, is an arbitrary attempt to impose dogma on reality. And so um, this is the type of person that says, well, because there, there are so many variants, we can't say that scripture is inspired. We can't say that it's inerrant. We can't say that it's infallible. We can't say that it's been preserved in light of this mound of external evidence. And so, so what does Dirk Young can uh, do with this? He says, arguably, there are details in this citation that require correction or qualification. So here's a, you know, a bit of a cover yourself a little bit here. Um, and I'm not agreeing, he's saying, with everything that D.C. Parker says. Um, but he's going to say he's he makes some good points. Uh, he continues and says there is the ideal text. And there are the documents, which are the physical manifestations of these texts. Then he asks, can we limit scripture to just the documents? I don't think so. And um, then he says, there is something behind the physical shapes of our Bible. And I, I, I was troubled by this as I was reading this because... I, I think the, the, the problem here in my mind is um, that when we talk about the scriptures, the, the, the traditional Protestant way to speak about the scriptures is to talk about their material content, their doctrinal content, but also their formal content, their words. And so the, the, the classic doctrine of Protestant preservation based on biblical teaching is that God has preserved not only the doctrinal content, but also the words themselves. And so what, what I see Yonkin starting to do here, uh, resting on this quotation from Yonkin, is to say that although God might preserve the, the material content of the Bible, he doesn't preserve the words. He doesn't preserve the formal content of Scripture. And so we have to look to something beyond the shape of our Bibles, which, of course, it's God who speaks. But just because we say, yes, it's God speaking to the Bible doesn't mean we can't also affirm the formal content of Scripture, the words. Um, he, he, he continues, he says, the question of what it means to do textual criticism on Scripture. Uh, well, let's read the rest. Uh, other than the undeniable physical aspects of the Bible, there's a question that has not attracted much attention. And that is the question of what, is, what it means to do textual criticism on scripture. So to his credit, he's, he's asking, he's saying there haven't been enough people who have thought about the theological implications of the whole enterprise of textual criticism. Then he says, as a text critic, I would be interested to see a theological prolegomena to doing textual criticism. I would too. I'd love it if someone who embraced modern textual criticism like Yonkin, would write up a, a theology and give biblical proof text for why they think that their approach to the text of Scripture matches up with Christian theology and matches up with the Christian bibliology. What does it mean to do textual criticism on the Word of God? Is there, for example, a theological problem when we use translations in other languages to correct the Hebrew text of the Old Testament? Great question. I think there is a huge problem with that, um, and I don't think we should be using the Septuagint to correct the traditional Hebrew text. Um, he says, where does preserving the text stop and human ingenuity take over? What does it tell about the nature of Scripture itself that textual criticism is needed? And I might just pause here. I mean, the more he writes, the more I realize the gap between his view of textual criticism and his theology of the Bible and the view that I hold to and the view that I think is present in the Protestant fathers, the Protestant Orthodox, because I would say we don't need modern textual criticism. 
we don't need it to restore the text because I, I think we could say we already have the text. A according to DC Parker, um, we'll never be able to find the text. Uh, according to DC Parker, there, there is no authorial text. There is no autograph. There are just many texts. And uh, a text in any form, uh, transmitted in any way, has some authentic value over against any other. And I mean, this is basically um, a postmodern approach to the Bible, saying it really doesn't matter what the shape, what the words of the Bible are, as long as there's some amorphous uh, content that is uh, promoted alongside of it. Um, he says uh, uh, here, John Frame answered this by pointing to divine providence, what it, which is a true answer, but then providence is always a true answer. Is there more to say? And so he kind of here at the end is saying, well, John Frame gets it right when he, remember, when he talks about the communal way that God intentionally left the scriptures corrupted. And so that, that Christians would work together and the scholars would teach the layman and establish their Bibles for them, et cetera. But again, is that really uh, the Bible's teaching on the preservation of scripture? Is that really the view of preservation that was held by the Protestant fathers? I don't think so. He says here at the end, new generations need to be taught what a text is and what it is not. But again, D.C. Parker doesn't think there is any authoritative text. There are just many, many texts. And if, if we look through, um, with respect, uh, Dr. Yonkin's treatment of the passages we've looked at, he's basically said at several points, um, I don't know what the text should be, and it works either way. Mark 1.1 1, 1 could be the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, or it can be the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, either one can be an appropriate authorial strategy. Is that really teaching a new generation what the text is and what it is not? Um, it seems that it's teaching the next generation that we really can't know what the text is, that we can't say with any definitive authority what the text of the word of God is. And then if we have a generation that can't name what scripture is and what it is not, what, it, what are going to be the implications for the doctrinal preaching and teaching of the church? Um, changes in text do have an impact on theology and not just regarding the doctrines that they address but also regarding, once again, the overall doctrine of Scripture itself, um, its nature, its inspiration, its authority, its preservation, its canonicity. And so um, I believe uh, that, that, yes, indeed, the questions about the text of Scripture and theology are important. Uh, there is a fraught relation between modern textual criticism of the New Testament and uh, biblical theology. Well, I hope that this review of this article has been helpful for those who are listening. I'll try to put a link in to the article itself on Dr. Yonkin's academia.edu page if you wanna read the article for yourself. Again, I hope this has been helpful, encouraging to those who are listening, and I'll look forward to speaking to you in the next episode of the Word Magazine podcast. Until then, take care and God bless.